0: 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1-6 to six. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. For God, who said, "Let light shine out of darkness," has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It's more than once I've I've heard it said that when it comes to sharing the gospel, Christians could learn a lot from Amway. Um, now I'm not sure how I feel about that. Um, I, I think I know the point they're making. The point they're making is that Amway salespeople—they're like true believers, aren't they? Um, They know their product, they love their product, they believe that Amway is the very best cleaning products in the whole wide world and that everybody should have them. And they believe that if only you could experience Amway, you'd be a true believer too. You'd be a convert and you'd love the stuff too. And I get the point they're making. Um, Some Amway folk love Amway more than some Christians seem to love Christ. At least that's the way it appears. So you meet an Amway person at the party, and that, at a party and that's all they want to talk about. They want to talk about Amway. And oh, oh, you've spilt a bit of tomato sauce on your blouse. Let me tell you about our new stain remover at Amway. I don't know how I could ever live without it. Well, I don't even know. Does Amway make stain remover? There's no Amway people here, is there? Or is there? Doesn't matter. Don't send me pamphlets if you are. But I don't want to be too crass, but... Many people, when they think of evangelism, they think of it as an exercise in sales, right? For them, they see Christianity and, and getting someone to become a Christian as a matter of sales. And if we're not making the sales, then we haven't got the right technique, right? So we've got a product to sell. It's a free product, faith in Jesus Christ. Eternal life is on offer, and it's free. Now, who wouldn't jump, jump at that offer? We just have to let people know about this wonderful free gift, and their life will be changed. And if they don't take the bait, then there must be something wrong with our sales technique, or there must be something wrong with our sales staff, or there must be something wrong with the sales department. Do you hear what I'm saying? And most Christians, well, we'd be very quick to deny this, but in practice, this is how a lot of us actually think. We have friends, we have family, we have children, we have neighbours, we we have all these special people who we're praying for, and we desperately want to see them come to faith and give their hearts to Jesus, but they remain unmoved. And so we pluck up the courage to, to share our faith with them, and maybe they politely listen, maybe they don't, but still they remain unmoved. And so what do we feel about ourselves? I've failed. I'm just no good at sharing my faith. So maybe we pass the job on to a professional. And so we invite them to church. Maybe they come. Maybe they don't. And the pastor preaches the simple gospel. But they remain unmoved. Well, what do we try next? Well, let's try a different pastor. Let's try a different church. We need to do whatever we can to get these people saved. Do you know what we've done? We've seen it as a sales problem we see it as a marketing problem if only there was a better salesman insert the word preacher or evangelist here right so i'm not good enough at sharing my faith i'll get a professional to do it oh, but if only we had a better preacher if only we had a better evangelist then this person i love would hear the gospel and they'd receive it and they'd be saved now If we're honest with ourselves that is the way a lot of us think at times my loved one hasn't responded to the gospel because i'm inadequate or because the preacher's inadequate or because the evangelist is inadequate because they need to have the right sort of person to preach the gospel to them and so we try another option now i've searched the new testament for these sorts of examples, right? Examples of where the gospel was preached, but somebody failed to respond to the gospel because the person delivering the message was inadequate, or they weren't cool, or because they weren't the right sort of person. But then the right person steps up, or the cool person, or the popular person, they get up and they share the gospel, and that made all the difference, right? So I searched the New Testament, and I've collated all of the scripture references of every time this has happened in the New Testament. And I'm just gonna pop them up on the screen there. There they are. Alright? So do you resonate with this? Now for those who are listening to the podcast, on the screen it just appeared an empty box. See, I can't find anywhere in the New Testament where someone rejects the gospel message after it's been faithfully preached, but then when they hear it preached by a more gifted person or a more on fire person or a more with it person. They, they then give their hearts to Jesus. Now, we find this hard to accept because we don't want to face the truth about our loved ones. And I don't want to offend you, but the reason that those we love haven't responded to the gospel is because their hearts are hard. Paul tells us here, and we're told many times throughout the New Testament, why people don't respond positively to the gospel we read it last week in chapter 3 verses 14 and 15 their minds are hardened the gospel is veiled to them they, they just don't see it it's not your fault well if you haven't shared your faith with them it probably is your fault but if you have shared your faith with them it's not your fault if they haven't responded And it's not your pastor's fault either well if your pastor or your minister isn't preaching the simple unadulterated gospel message well it is their fault but if your pastor or your minister is preaching the simple unadulterated gospel message the fact that some people aren't responding to this message isn't their fault in fact the normal course of events is that whenever the true gospel of Jesus Christ is proclaimed, most people don't respond to it. Now, some of you might be getting a little bit annoyed about now and go, oh, he's using all these negative words. Now, if he keeps speaking these negative words, nobody will come to faith. What a nonsense. Um, I don't know where this negative words, positive words thing comes from, but it's not biblical. God wants us to speak truth and wisdom. And and that's what we've got here truth and wisdom. Paul says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. You see, that's just the way it is. The truth is, the gospel is veiled. Not everybody is going to get it. In fact, very few do. So don't lose heart. All right, so so maybe you've worked really hard to pluck up enough courage to simply share the gospel with someone and it's failed. And they might have said, yeah, that's fine for you, but I'm not interested, thanks very much. Or maybe they didn't say anything at all and now you're all worried that, well, maybe I've offended them. Or maybe they were outright hostile to the gospel and you feel that it was a complete disaster. You know what? When that happens, and it will happen, you know what the natural human reaction is? It's to go, well, I've tried that. I'm going to stop now. Don't ever give up. You know, what happens if you fall off a horse? Ken, what happens if you fall off a horse? Get straight back on again, unless the bone's sticking out the side. Hey, yeah, right. In the first verse of today's reading, Paul says, we do not lose heart. Or some other manuscripts say, we are not derelict in duty. And he tells us why they persist in preaching the gospel. Right, even though many people were rejected, and even though many people's eyes have been blinded by Satan... Paul's saying we persist in preaching the gospel. Why? Well, he grounds their persistence of preaching the gospel in what we learned last week about the glory of God. He says, therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God. Now, now the word therefore, often we'll just brush over that. But no, when we see the word therefore, it means, oh, we should look back to what we've just read. We should look back to what we learned last week. And last week, we were learning about the glory of God. We're learning that we are being transformed. We're being metamorphosed from, from one degree of glory to another. We are being transformed into the very image of Christ. And, and we talked about how this transformation, it's, it's not to do with being all sparkly and shiny. It's not that sort of glory. He's changing our hearts. He's changing our character. He's changing the very person that we are. And he's doing this not because we're so marvellous. He's doing it because he's so merciful. And so Paul says, therefore, right? So because in the mercy of God, he is transforming us and changing us and renewing us. Because in the mercy of God, he is making us more and more like Christ. We have this ministry and we have this duty of sharing the gospel. Let us not lose heart. Let us not be derelict in that duty. Um, It's pretty unfashionable these days in the Christian church to talk about duty. Um, I think it's because we like talking about grace and free gifts and mercy And so it's become terribly unfashionable for us to talk about things like duty. Because we see duty as the nemesis or the arch rival or or the opponent of grace. And yet the most reliable of of the original Greek transcripts say we do not neglect our duty. Do you realise that? We, We have a duty, you and I. God calls us, he calls you and he calls me. To ministry. Not because we deserve it, not because we're so well trained, not because we're such excellent people and such excellent communicators. He calls us, he calls you, and he calls me because of his mercy. In spite of who we are, in spite of how inadequate we are, God chooses us Because we're the saved, because we're the redeemed. We're the ones that he chooses to pass this message on to tell the truth of the gospel to the world. And that's why we don't give up. If we're not sharing the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ with the world, who's going to be doing it? And so when the next person that you share your faith with rejects Jesus don't give up. And when the one after that rejects Jesus, don't give up then either. And when the 99th person that you've shared your faith with rejects Jesus, don't give up. Because it could be the 100th one that says to you, thank you so much that you haven't given up. Thank you that you have persisted in sharing your faith. Thank you that you told me about Jesus. Or else I wouldn't have known. Now, in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, right, so we're in 2 Corinthians, but in 1 Corinthians, Paul reveals a little bit about the lengths that he would go to to preach the gospel and to help people of different cultures and different walks of life to understand the gospel. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though I'm not really under the law. I did it that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. I'm not really outside the law of God, but I'm under the law of Christ, but I did it that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. All right? In his first letter, he is revealing the lengths that he will go to to help people from different cultures and different walks of life to understand the gospel. But now he tells us two things that he will not do. He says, we refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. And he calls these disgraceful, underhanded ways. He has renounced these things. He will not do them. See, as we've already said, when the true gospel is preached, Only a few will receive it. Of the others, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing. But sadly, to try and make the gospel relevant or to try and land a few more converts, it's become quite common practice to do the very two things that Paul refuses to do to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. Now, one of these is to do with the, with the character or, or the integrity of the preacher and the method that they use. And the other is to do with the content of the message that they preach. The Greek word panorgia, which our Bible translates as cunning, it literally means they would do anything. Right? It's about craftiness cunning. There's nothing that they wouldn't do. Nothing is beyond them. They would just do it. Now, in the context where Paul's writing to this Corinthian church, there's a bit going on in the background, we've already talked about this over the last few weeks, about what's going on here. There's these false teachers that have come into Corinth. Uh, Paul sarcastically refers to them as the super apostles. And these people have have, weaseled their way in, And they've lied, and they've manipulated, and they've maligned Paul, and they've done all of this to to elevate themselves and to elevate their own status. There is something rotten in the church when church leaders or preachers or pastors lie or tell half-truths when they tell one person what they want to hear and then they tell another person what they want to hear, but they're two opposite things. As a pastor, I wish I could tell you this never happens, but I can't. The sad reality is some church leaders who appear to be very nice and charming and genuine people are people who stretch the truth to tell people what they want to hear. And they manipulate people and they manipulate circumstances to their own ends to try and build their church or to try and build their status in the church. They are crafty. They practice cunning. And that's one of the disgraceful and underhanded ways that Paul renounces. And the second thing he refuses to do is to change the content of the message that is preached. He said, we refuse to tamper with God's word. Some of the fastest growing churches today are growing so quickly because the gospel they preach isn't the gospel. Uh, mind you, some of the fastest shrinking churches are shrinking also because they've also tampered with God's word too. It works both ways sometimes. Sometimes. And God's word gets tampered with in many ways to try and make the gospel that that little bit more appealing. And today I'm just going to give you a few examples, and these are just examples. So the first example, um, I can't ignore this one because it's such a big issue in our country at the moment. And once again, it's been in the news this very week. Uh, It's been in the media, both nationally, in the story about Israel Falal and the settlement with Rugby Australia. And it's been in the news locally as well. Some preachers, teachers or churches tamper with God's word to revise God's moral and ethical standard for his people, especially to do with the way they express their sexuality. And I'm not going to try and talk my way around this. I'm just going to have to come straight out and say it. God's design for sexual intimacy is for it to be between one man and one woman who are married to each other at the exclusion of all others. Now, that is God's design for sexual intimacy. Anything else is a rejection of God. Anything else is sexual immorality and it's not fitting for God's people. So sex before marriage is sin, and it's rebellion against God. Living together with your boyfriend or your girlfriend before you get married is sin, and it's rebellion against God. Same-sex marriage is sin, and it's rebellion against God. And yet some churches now teach that it's okay for even a minister to be a practicing homosexual, or for a minister to live with his lover, or some churches even take it further, and they now marry same-sex couples, and they celebrate as a gift of God. Now, when a church does this, they blatantly tamper with God's word in the hope that it's going to make the gospel more relevant for the culture that we live in, which is increasingly accepting this as the norm. Now, how has this happened? How do churches come to this position? And and I'm going to digress a little bit now. Some of you probably wish that I don't um, because you're sick to death of hearing about this. And I wish I didn't have to do it either, but I feel I need to talk about this because I know there are individuals and there are families um, who are listening to this on the podcast or seeing it on the video, or might even be present here today, who are struggling with this very issue in their own family. They have a family member, a brother, or a sister, or a son, or a daughter, or a cousin, or a friend, who are struggling with this temptation. And, and they desperately want them to find a place and find a home in the church. And for these people, it's a very real temptation to tamper with God's word. It, it's just so easy to do it. We'll just change it this little bit and then, then they'll be welcome. Now, when it comes to sin and, and the sins that we're tempted by, we are all tempted by something, aren't we? You're tempted by sins. I'm tempted to sin. And some people are tempted by same-sex attraction. And when they embrace it as a lifestyle, they are affirming, this is who I am. It's not just what I do, this is who I am. And they try to explain to us, then, for this reason, this sin is different from any other sin because they feel it goes to the very personhood of who they are. But anyone who's convinced by that argument completely misunderstands the nature of sin and the pervasiveness of sin into all of us. You see, this is the predicament of all humanity. Sin in all of us goes to our very personhood of who we are the world would have us believe that we're all basically born good and it's a few external factors that might make us do naughty things. But that's not at all the way it is. Sin isn't just a few naughty things that we do, things that we can easily dispense with and put aside and therefore become sinless. Sin for all of us, sin for me and sin for you is a tightly bound part of who we are or who we were. In fact, it is so much a part of who we are that Jesus says, you need to be born again. The person that you are is so utterly sinful and so utterly broken, we can't just fix you up. You need to be born again. Paul talks about putting debt to death, the old sinful man and raising up the new. I was so corrupt. Sin was so ingrained in me that the person that I was, to the very core of my being, was so vile, I had to be born again. And so did you. And so does a homosexual. And in the church, there's two types of people. That we're dealing with on this issue there's well-meaning folk and there's activists and well-meaning folk who don't understand just how radical being born again is for all of us have bought the lie that the activists have been putting forward that god isn't able to change these people they've bought the lie that they can't be renewed that they can't be transformed that they can't be metamorphosist, And well-meaning people feel that the best way for them to love their child or their brother or their sister or their friend is to just tinker with God's word a bit. And then they encourage them to, to embrace the very sin that's stopping them from being born again. They're, they're very well-meaning, but they've played right into the devil's hands. That, that's what Paul refers to as tampering with God's word as being disgraceful and underhanded. The, the very ones that we want to include, the very ones that we want to help, we're actually making them more lost. Well-meaning folk encourage them to go on sinning, and so they don't repent, and they're not born again. And so they're not being changed from glory to glory because they've embraced sin instead of embracing Christ. Whenever I hear a Bible teacher or a preacher or anyone for that matter, tinkering with the scripture on this issue, I'm reminded of the words of Jesus, very sobering words indeed. Mark chapter nine, he says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Don't be deceived. Uh, We might be well-meaning, but don't be deceived. Please never cause one of God's little ones, one of those for whom Jesus died, to fall into sin because you've tampered with God's word. Anyway, that took longer than I wanted it to, but that is an obvious tampering with God's word. But for a second example, there's something which is a bit more seductive to more of us, the prosperity gospel. It's a very popular message that Jesus wants you to be rich He wants to bless you. He wants you to be happy, healthy, wealthy, prosperous. He's going to make you popular, turn you into a great leader and a person of influence. And the message is come to Jesus and he'll give you all these things. And to bring this out, to bring this very enticing and popular message, people have to tamper with God's word because that's not at all what it says. In fact, Jesus tells us that we're going to have troubles in this life. And he tells us that don't store up your treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. Jesus never promised us a bed of roses, but he certainly did promise us a cross of nails. And he's told us that the road of discipleship following his ways is a hard road at times. And a third example of tampering with God's word is what's become known as easy believism people who follow easy believism teaching don't call it that by the way um it's a derogatory term what it is it's the quick easy no-cost gospel that says just believe in jesus and the job's done that's it now i guess the history of it is it'd be a decade or so ago now that Some church leaders noticed that some of the biggest and fastest growing churches, particularly in the US, although now in Australia as well, were filling up with people who believed that they were saved, but they weren't at all being changed. They weren't being transformed. You know, what we talked about last week, being transformed and being changed from glory to glory to become more and more Christ-like. Well, people weren't. Men and women within the congregation had loose sexual ethics... Um, they were living together they had loose bad work ethics they they would lie and cheat and steal, they'd become very materialistic, they would accumulate wealth and they didn't care for the poor or the sick or the widow or the orphan their behaviour just didn't change, they're just the same as the people in the world around them and yet they believed they were saved just because they believed in Jesus now And so some of the church leaders started asking, what's going on here? Why is this happening in in some of these churches? And they looked at the gospel that was being preached, and, and the gospel that was being preached had changed the very definition of repentance. So biblically, to repent means to turn away from sin, stop doing it. Right? I reject sin. I'm, I, that's the way I used to live. I'm not going to live like that anymore. And I'm going to turn to Jesus Christ as my Lord and Saviour. He forgives me for everything that I've done wrong. But I'm making a commitment to you, Jesus, because you are Lord, you want me to live righteously and I will. But they changed the definition of repentance to just about changing your mind about who Jesus is. And so people didn't stop sinning. And they weren't being told to become God's holy people. Now, I chose that example for two reasons. Firstly, because it's quite popular in our culture now too, uh, in some evangelical churches. Um, But the second reason is, I think that's probably a fair bit of what was going on in Corinth. In Corinth, there was, it was a mess. People weren't being changed. They weren't living as God's righteous people. So that's just a few examples. But these are things that Paul refuses to do. He says, we refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. And then he tells us what he does do. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Do you know how to tell if somebody is a good and faithful preacher? It's when the simple, unadulterated truth is preached. That's the evidence of an anointed preacher. And I threw that word anointed in on purpose. Because, you know, often when we think of an anointed preacher, we might think of someone, oh, they've got the gift of the gab. Or, oh, they're, they're just really on fire, those, that preacher. Or people just love to listen to him and that's anointed. No, actually, that's not so much the anointing. What's more important, what the proof of the pudding is, is the message that is preached. The proof of the pudding isn't even the number of people who will respond to the message. What use is that if the message is wrong? The proof of the pudding is the message that is preached. And sometimes there's way too much self in there. In verse five, Paul says, "For we what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord." Now, for Jesus to be Lord means we submit everything to Jesus. It does. Jesus just isn't just a tack on to our lives. For Jesus to be Lord, it means he's the boss. He owns us. He comes first in everything. Now, if you'd like to have a, a, at your fingertips the shortest, most accurate description of the gospel, there it is right there. That's what they proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. And that's what we need to be proclaiming. We shouldn't be proclaiming ourselves. Way too often in churches, it all becomes about the cult of the personality. When I was going to Bible college, there was a group of ministers that used to, from time to time, um, they'd go to visit a megachurch, and then they'd visit another one, and, and the reason they'd do it is we'd go there, and we'd just pick their brains about, okay, so what are you doing? What, what? How are you sharing the gospel? What's working? What's not working? And just seeing how everything was unfolding anyway we went to this one particular church one day and we're going to be meeting with the senior pastor and but he hadn't turned up and so his personal assistant took us around hear that everybody minister there had a personal assistant I've got one of those too but she's got a broken leg at the moment she's not much use Um, I think I'm her personal assistant at the moment Um, But anyway, this personal assistant, I don't know if it was just me, but I was almost physically sick at the way she worshiped the senior pastor. She would just tell us, oh, our pastor so-and-so, he's so wonderful. He does this and he's, oh, it's just wonderful. She was just, it just went on and on and on. And, but there's no room for self in the church. By the way, I know none of you speak of your pastor like that, thank goodness. Uh, but there's no room for self in preaching. The message that I have to give, it isn't about me. The message that I have to proclaim is about Jesus Christ as Lord. And when you're sharing the gospel message, when you're inviting someone to, go to, ch- to come to church, they say, oh, we've got the most wonderful pastor. Because that'd be a lie but also point them to christ point them to jesus as lord and that that's the simplicity of the gospel and this is the gospel that is powerful even though the god of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers and even though the god of this world is stopping them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of christ God uses the most unlikely people, people like you and people like me. He uses people who are willing to be his servants and those who are willing to share the gospel and willing to preach. He uses us to cut through the blindness and to make his light shine. God is so powerful. There's Satan. He's doing his darndest to stop the gospel from getting through. But our God is greater than the devil. And Paul uses two examples of the power of God to save. He uses the example of creation, and he takes this in to use it as an example of his own salvation. See, we don't need to tamper with God's word. And we don't need to be cunning and try and trick people into giving their hearts to Jesus. We don't have to do this to make God's church grow. When God created the world, he spoke and he said, let light shine out of darkness. Now, if God can create light in the midst of darkness, what does it matter that the devil is blinding the eyes of those who we're trying to preach the gospel to? Because the God who can make the light shine in the darkness, he can make the light shine in the darkness of their life. He can soften their heart and shine the light of the gospel into the heart of an unbeliever. And Paul gives us an example of how that exact thing happened for him. Literally, Paul hated Christ. And Paul hated Christians. Before Paul was saved, it was his life's work to kill Christians And he's on the road to Damascus, on his way to Damascus, looking for more Christians. He was going to hunt them down, arrest them, have them tried and possibly executed like what Stephen had been. And so he was on that road to Damascus, and there, on that road, God literally blinded him with a bright light, and there on that road, he met Jesus. Don't give up, ever. Okay, so you've shared your faith with someone and they turned you down. Don't give up. Share it with somebody else. Okay, so you've invited someone to come to church and hear the gospel and they've said, no thanks. Don't give up. Invite somebody else. I'm sure you know more than one person. Okay, so the person who you love hasn't yet repented of sin and made Jesus their Lord, don't give up on them. Don't tamper with God's word and don't be cunning about it because that will only lead to death. Just don't give up on them. Keep sharing the gospel with them. The Lord, our God, has the power to shine light where there's darkness and he will our task is to just faithfully proclaim the unadulterated gospel of Jesus Christ and keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you that you've done this for us. You shone your light into the darkness of our lives. There was so much darkness, but you cut through that darkness. Even though the evil one did his best to try and stop us coming to faith, you still shone the light of your gospel in, and in your mercy we were saved. And Lord, we thank you for this. And Lord, we know that what you did for us, you want to do for many, many more people. Lord, we want to thank you that it's not our mission, it's your mission to save the lost. But Lord, it's a bit challenging for us at times that you would choose to use us. Lord, that is humbling. And sometimes we do feel really inadequate about this. Lord, we just ask today that you would renew the passion in our lives. Lord, that you'd help us to get back on that horse again. Because, Lord, there's been times when we've failed, we've shared the gospel and we've failed, and so we've given up. Lord, help us to just Keep on keeping on. And Lord, we pray that you would do your mighty work and save more people for you. In Jesus' name, amen.